The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. As we come back to the book of Exodus this evening, we pick up where we left off last time with Moses. Remember, in conversation with the angel of the Lord in a burning bush. Remember, Moses was tending his father-in-law Jethro's flock in Midian when suddenly he saw a bush that was burning, but that was not consumed. And so Moses was curious about this bush, and so he began approaching it. And as he got nearer, he was told to remove his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. And he quickly realized that he was having a direct encounter with the Lord himself. And so he covered his face. And the Lord began explaining to him that he had seen the suffering of his people. That he had heard their cries for relief and for justice. And that now would be the time for deliverance. Now was the time that they would move on to inherit the land that was promised to them. The land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, of course, that all sounds wonderful to Moses, I'm sure. But then things take a turn. Remember in verse 10 of chapter 3, the Lord says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now at that point, I'm sure everything was sounding pretty great to Moses. But God said, I will send you to Pharaoh. Wait a second. Me? You're going to send me? (laughs) And so he asked the Lord, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, embedded in that question is the reality of what Moses had already done. You remember we saw in chapter 2. Remember in his haste, he thought, I will set these people free. And when he was 40 years old, he left the house of Pharaoh, he identified with the Hebrews and he went out and on his very first day of identifying as this Hebrew man, he saw one of his kinsmen being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster and he went and he killed the Egyptian. He thought he was the great liberator. He would begin this great work. But he was found out, remember. The very next day, he realized that word had gotten out. And so he fled to Midian to get away. And at this point, he went to Midian, he settled down, and he had a quiet life with his wife and his family. He had a daily routine. He was herding the sheep. Things were going fine. And here we are 40 years later. So Moses is about 80 years old. He's living a quiet, peaceable life without any drama. But the Lord had other plans. Now, a few thousand years before George Washington, Moses was a reluctant leader. It was Moses saying, I'm not so sure you have the right guy for this job. It was Moses questioning why anybody, especially God himself, he knows what has happened. He knows who this man is. God himself would ever want him to have anything to do with this situation. Now, the question is often raised as to whether or not Moses was really being humble or if he was trying to avoid responsibility from the Lord. But whatever the case, he was the man that God was calling. But it was accompanied also with a great promise. And we saw that in verse 12, 
when the Lord told him, I will be with you. Now, of course, Moses followed up with what really is a very reasonable question. In his mind, I'm sure he thought, I can't just waltz into Egypt where I was a wanted man and still for all intents and purposes am a fugitive of the law and demand that Pharaoh let the Hebrews go. It's not going to work that way. And the Hebrew people aren't even going to listen to me anyway. Most of them probably don't even know who I am. And so he asked God, if I do this, who am I supposed to say that you are? And the Lord told Moses in verse 14, those great words, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Well, Moses is still reluctant. And we'll see this reluctance carry on into the first part of chapter 4. And there will be uh, sort of excuses along the way as he's doing what God has called him to do. He's still wondering how it is that he would ever be the man for the job. He still has questions. Some suggest that Moses is even sort of arguing with God in a conversation here. And this conversation will stretch into the next chapter. So let's read together beginning in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 3. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Well, here we have God giving Moses his initial marching orders, along with the assurance that he's not sending him to fulfill this mission all on his own. This is a rare section of scripture where the Lord gives very explicit instructions for his servant to carry out his will. That was a very straightforward passage of scripture. Anyone can read this and understand exactly what's going on. So I want to look at a few uh, smaller nuances that appear in this text that will help give us a greater perspective. He tells Moses here how to approach the Israelites 
He tells him what to tell them, and then he instructs him on the message that is to be delivered to the Egyptians, and most specifically to Pharaoh himself. So several important things that we can see in the text. And one of those is sort of hidden in the text a little bit, and that is that God's way of governance and guidance is typically through a plurality of elders and not individual men. Now, when we we think about Exodus, there are a few key individuals that we typically think about and that stand out in our minds. Of course, Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron. Maybe you think of Jethro and then, of course, the larger bodies of the Israelites and the Egyptians. But tucked away in the text is something that can be easily missed. We typically think about Moses, and maybe you've seen pictures in a children's Bible or something, and you just think of Moses standing before Pharaoh and delivering this message that God has given to him. Maybe Aaron is beside him or just standing right behind him. But notice in verse 16, God tells Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together. And then in verse 18, God says, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Now, we read a lot about prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament. They all play a significant role in God's plan of redemption for his people. However, God's typical way of governance and guidance is through a plurality of elders. We learn from Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. No matter how gifted a man may be in terms of what he is called to do in any kind of ministry, it is never wise that he would seek to fulfill that calling on his own. No one is sufficient for what God calls us to do. And no amount of gifts can overcome the challenges that any ministry will face. Later in Exodus, we will see that this is going to play out in an even more practical way. Remember, Moses is going to be overwhelmed with the task of leading the Israelites and settling their various disputes and hearing their complaints and making decisions of where to go and what to do and how to do it. And all these things are going to start to pile up on him. It's all going to be too much. And his father-in-law, Jethro, is going to come to him and say, Moses, you can't do this on your own. It's too much. You need help. And so get some of the men together who are trusted, who are faithful, who you can work with. And they also need to be entrusted with responsibilities to make all of this work. You're going to burn yourself out and you won't be useful to anybody. And so we see that even here. The instructions not, Moses, go and do this on your own. But Moses, go to the elders of Israel. They're trusted men. The Israelites know who they are. They will listen to them. And then you, along with them, go before the king of Egypt. Go before Pharaoh and make known to him what I have told to you. Now, I think we tend to assume that the idea of plurality leadership is isolated to the New Testament church. But this has always been God's plan for his people. Every church, every ministry should have a plurality of leaders. There are no CEOs in God's plan. A well-ordered and well-functioning church will have multiple men who are taking up the important tasks of the church. 
administration and counseling and prayer and shepherding and teaching and preaching and decision making. Each elder will have different gifts and the church should be able to rely on those men to use their gifts for the good of the body according to their specific strengths. There are times when a church might be without a plurality of elders, often when a church is planted and it's just beginning, it's often with one man, or perhaps there will be a time when a church might lose its elders for various reasons and a man might be left on his own, but it's not ideal, and we should trust that the Lord will have the right men in the church to take up that role. Honestly, many churches struggle to have a plurality of elders because they have expectations that they place on men that are way too high. He's not old enough, or he doesn't have enough education, or he hasn't been preaching for 10 years, or his children are too young, or he hasn't published any books, or on and on. Whatever the expectations, these churches often put on men that go well beyond what we see in the Bible. Qualified men are first and foremost men of godly character and not men of world-class credentials. Remember, Moses himself, he was reluctant to do any of this. Who was he at this point? A boy that was saved from a river and raised in the house of the king. And at 40 years old, he became a murderer and then an escaped convict who was a sheep herder. And God came to him and said, you're the guy. And so Moses knew. And we should know. But God in his infinite wisdom tells Moses, this isn't just you, Moses. Go and get the elders together. They'll be able to deliberate one with another. What's the best approach here? How should we say this? Are we doing this the right way? They can discuss. They can pray together. They can show that this wasn't just one man doing what he wanted to do, but that with the help of the Lord, they were able to come to a decision on how to move forward as a collective body. I've had the opportunity to serve as one of as many as five elders at one time and as few as two elders at one time. And over 17 years of ministry, there have been very difficult decisions that have been made. There have been challenging situations. There have been big challenges and changes to lead through. And I cannot imagine how different those things would have turned out if it were not for a multitude of counselors. No man should trust himself enough to think that he is capable of leading God's people on his own. And with a multitude of counselors, there is also equality in authority. It's pretty common in evangelical circles to designate a man as a senior pastor of a church. But there is no such thing in the Bible. What can end up happening in those scenarios is that other elders defer to this man or the congregation begins to defer to a single man and assume that all the other elders work for him and take their marching orders from him. And so in essence, he really is functioning as a sole leader or a sole decision maker, no matter how much he may say that he's accountable to the other elders. And if he's surrounded by men who will just agree with him or are afraid to voice opposition, he will... He will always get his way. And I assure you, you don't don't want me to always get my way. I promise you that. But God designed his church to be led through a plurality of leaders. 
And so here at EBC, you don't have one or two pastors. You have four pastors with equal authority and with diverse gifts. This is God's plan. Because whether it's with Moses or whether it's with a pastor in a church, he has no intention of having a one-man show with one man calling all the shots. Think about this in terms of what happened with Moses thus far. Again, we, we read this in Stephen's account this morning in Acts chapter 7. When Moses turns 40, what's his initial inclination? I've already mentioned it. These are my people, the Hebrew people. I'm going to be their rescuer. I'm going to be their deliverer. So what was his first course of action? It was not to consult anybody. It was to do his own thing and to beat this man to death. He had no divine authority. He had no right to kill the man, but he acted on his own in haste. And, in result, and, and the result was him having to flee And at this point in the story, it's safe to assume that he thought his time as a deliverer was short-lived. But now, 40 years later, God comes to Moses, you're going back. And this time, it's not going to be you doing it on your own. You'll have the elders of Israel, and you will have me. Now, instead of making a rash decision and doing your own thing, you'll have a multitude of counselors. You can make the best and wisest decisions. And so in the end, what the people hopefully see is that they have, they have several men that have examined the situation and the people know who they are and they can trust them to lead them well. And while there may be decisions they make that not everyone agrees with, it's not been reached in haste and it hasn't been invented in the mind of a single man. I can trust that they've thought through the issue, that they've prayed through the issue that they've collectively reached a decision with as much unanimity as possible, and they have acted wisely. It is a small detail here in the text, but we should have no doubt that it made all the difference in the eventual outcome of the Exodus. A multitude of counselors. Well, from that, we see, and we've seen this all along, we see this all throughout the Bible, this really is the story of the Exodus, that God will accomplish his purposes. You'll recall from last time that one of the questions that Moses had for the angel of the Lord, and it's a very reasonable question given the circumstances, he asks him, who am I supposed to say that you are? Who shall I tell them sent me? And we have that wonderful statement from God, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so now, here in verse 15, God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The Lord, the God of your fathers. Now this this word, the name Lord, It's referred to as a tetragrammaton, tetragrammaton. And in Hebrew, it consists of four letters, Y-H-W-H. So the proper way to say God's special name was something like Yahweh, we think. It's mysterious. Now, there, there are many different ways to understand God's name. Last time we considered the aseity of God, his eternality. 
or his immutability. He's eternal and he's unchanging. But there's so much more that could be said. And in the end, we have to admit that God's name is so inscrutable that we are forced to admit what our confession says in chapter 2, that God is incomprehensible. I think we are best served by Herman Bavinck's explanation. He says, God is that which he calls himself, and he calls himself that which he is. What more could be said? He is what he is. So the God who is reveals his name, and he reveals his plans for the Israelites and the Egyptians. And the first step for Moses is to go back to Egypt and to tell the Israelites, here's what's going to happen. And God told him exactly what to say. The Lord, the God of your fathers, has appointed, uh, excuse me, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey. And here we have a repetition of the promise that God made earlier in chapter 3, and really a point that we've carried out from the end of chapter 2 all the way through. God sees their affliction. God remembers his promise that he has made. God hears the cries of the people, and God remembers. And he knows. He knows. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't abandoned them. And his plan is taking shape and it will be fulfilled exactly as he has determined. God is at work to save his people. This is why God appeared to Moses in the bush. And when Moses returns to Egypt, he's to tell the Israelites that he met with God. And God remembers them. And God cares about them. And God is ready to bring them out of slavery to fulfill his promise. We've seen it several times as we've looked at Exodus thus far, and we see it here again in the words of God himself. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. He's not blind, and he's not indifferent to their suffering. Now, I hope you see, you can see here, the beautiful picture of the gospel that is coming together. The everlasting God of the universe determined that he would save his people from the bondage of slavery to sin. If you are a Christian, God saw you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God knew that you were in bondage, and he knew that you had no hope of being released from that bondage on your own. The law would not do. No amount of good works would do. And no attempt at being free from breaking the chains would do. And so he had to send a deliverer. Now this time the deliverer wasn't Moses. It wasn't a failed man who God called and used to fulfill his promise anyway. No, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world. But this time not as the angel of the Lord. No, but with flesh and bone, just like you and I to live a perfect life, and to die a sinner's death, to set us free. God saw our affliction in our sin. He heard the cries of our desperate hearts, even though we didn't know we were crying out for help. How long will I continue to be the wretched man or woman that I am? How long will I continue to run my race toward hell with no reprieve? 
How long will I continue to give myself over to the world and the flesh and the devil? He knew our condition. He knew our hearts. He knew we had only one hope. And that hope is in the promise that he gave to send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. And by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, we would have everlasting life. But that promise extends even beyond the slavish chains of sin being broken into a greater promised land that the people of God would enjoy with him forever. The new heavens and the new earth, where there is no sin, where there is no pain, where there is no temptation. And friend, if you do not know Christ... If you've not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, if you do not know that your sins have been forgiven, you remain in slavery. You remain in bondage. You remain in sin. But the Lord freely offers Christ to you. The question is, will you take him as your savior? Will you come to the end of yourself and stand upon his righteousness alone? We're going to see how obstinate and stubborn the Pharaoh is in the chapters ahead. We will see how he hardens his heart against God. But will you remain with a hardened heart? Will you continue to live for momentary pleasures? Will you continue to try and run through this life with your hands and your feet chained together by sin? You may have convinced yourself that everything's okay. You may tell yourself that you're not a bad person or you do some good things here and there so you're going to be fine. But God's standard isn't that you're not bad and God's standard is not that you do some good things here and there. God's standard is that you are perfect. Now the world wants you to think that that real freedom is just living for today and doing whatever you want, however you want. Live today, sort out the consequences tomorrow. But friend, tomorrow isn't promised. And you've lived enough life at this point doing your own thing that you know that if tomorrow comes, it's usually filled with regret, a headache, and a lot of questions. Look to Christ and find true freedom. Look to Christ that you can sing, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Look to Christ and live. And in him you have the promise of everlasting life, everlasting freedom, and everlasting peace and joy with Christ himself. Well, what was the next step in God's plan? After Moses tells the elders of the Israelites who God is and what he's going to do, It would be time to go with the elders to deliver this message to Pharaoh. Verse 18. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may make sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, a lot of ink is spilt trying to understand why it is that they are to ask for a three days journey. Some scholars even ridiculously suggest that maybe God was telling him to lie. He wasn't. Now, we have to remember that this is the beginning of a process, a sort of bartering that's going to take place between Pharaoh on the one side and the voice of God through Moses on the other. 
there, there are several reasonable explanations, and I think part of it is this, and we don't do this much in the United States, but if you've ever traveled much, maybe you're a little more used to it. I did it every day for two weeks in Nigeria. You get into this sort of back and forth. If someone's selling something, or they have a, a service they're going to provide to you, the first question is always, how much? And you know that whatever they say, the price is going to be way too high. Oh, we'll use dollars for this example, and they'll say $100. And so what are you expected to do? Well, they hope you'll be uncomfortable with the whole process. My wife hates this. I love it. <laughs> but they hope you'll, you'll hate the process, and you'll just give them $100 and pay way too much. But a good negotiator will instantly respond with outrage. $100? I came here. You said you were my friend. Why are you trying to steal from me and take my... Why would you do me like this? I thought we were going to talk about something reasonable, and now you're here trying to rob me. And so the seller tries to reassure you. My friend, please, what, what will you pay? You tell me what you want to pay. And then you have to come in way under what you will actually pay with an excuse as to why you're doing so. I'm just still shook that you said $100. Honestly, I could get this somewhere else for much less, but I'm here with you now. I thought we were, I thought we were friends, and we, we were talking about this, and I really like this, but someone else could sell it much cheaper. I mean, honestly, at this point, I'm so offended, I can't see myself paying more than $20. And then it's the seller's turn now to respond back with outrage. And he can't believe you would come in so low. And it's back and forth and back and forth until we come to some agreement somewhere in the middle where we both know we would end up in the first place. And the more acting you do, the better. It's a bit of a dance. It's a tango. And hopefully in the end, you come out on top. Well, I think... As we look at this text and as we look at these interactions, we see something of a barter going on. What becomes obvious in the bargaining that will go on is that Pharaoh, Pharaoh is never deceived to think that the Israelites were just going to go away for three days. Moses had no intention of deceiving him. These men were knowingly engaged in this kind of bartering discourse to negotiate the withdrawal of Israel, knowing that once they left they would never return. But there's still something yet more important. The bigger point of what was behind the Israelites asking for permission to leave to the wilderness is that they wanted to go out and meet with their God, to worship Him, to renew their covenant relationship with Him, offering sacrifices for their sins. Remember, at this point, they have been in Egypt for so long that most, if not pretty much all of them, had taken on the customs, had taken on the religious worship of the Egyptians themselves. And so they are going to want to renew their covenant relationship with him, to offer sacrifices to him. We have to remember why God does what he does in every instance, and it's all for his own glory. So the bigger question isn't why only three days, but it's whether or not Pharaoh would ever allow an enslaved people to worship any god other than himself. 
Would he ever be agreeable? Would he ever enter into this barter that someone other than himself would get all the glory? God was exposing Pharaoh's hostility toward the only one who is worthy of worship and glory. Even a few days of religious freedom would not be tolerated. Because even if he gave them a few short days to worship, it would be clear to everyone that all the glory didn't belong to him at all. This is the choice before everyone. Will you live for the glory of God or will you live for your own? The Israelites were going to live for their Lord, their God, Yahweh, the great I am. Pharaoh was going to make his choice too. And it would not, and, and, and eventually it would lead to complete ruin and disaster. And so the Lord said, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now, we're not going to look at this now because the details will unfold in the chapters ahead. But we have a clear indication here of what's to come. God's purposes will come to pass. They always have and they always will. There's no maybe. There's no hopefully. But the Lord has decreed it. And so it will happen. Doesn't that give us great comfort? We may have a lot of challenging questions. We may wonder why some things are the way that they are and wish they were different. But in the end, we can rest assured that the Lord has a plan that is far greater than anything we could imagine in our own minds. It should give us great confidence that even when the skies are dark and the road is long and empty, the Lord is with us working out his plan in his world for his people in his way that in the end he alone will be glorified. There is no possibility of God's plan failing. He's declared in Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Even though all the powers of evil may array themselves against us, whatever God has called us to do will be precisely as he has appointed. Maybe not in a day or a week or a month or a year, but it will all come to pass as he plans. He says right at the end of verse 20, he will let you go. But that's not all. And I love this. We'll see this in our final point. God tells the Israelites in verses 21 and 22 to plunder the Egyptians. Read that again in verse 21. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The end has already been decided. The Lord knows what he will do. He knows how it will all turn out. Not only will the Israelites be released from bondage, and not only will God's promise be fulfilled, but they will receive favor from the Egyptians on their way out. The women are to go to their Egyptian neighbors. And they're, they're to, to, as they're leaving, they're to ask for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And they will receive it. And they're to put it on their children. 
And so not only no longer slaves, not only now are they free, not only now are they moving on to the land flowing with milk and honey, but God is on their side and their children will be clothed in the finest clothes and will wear the finest jewelry. God isn't just going to bless the Israelites. He's going to pour out the cup of blessing until it overflows. Now, once again, we have scholars who want to debate what's going on here. I think more often than not, men get their PhDs from Cracker Jack's boxes because they don't read the text carefully. But notice what it says. I, God, will give you favor. So first we have God at work. And then he says, each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house. They're asking, they're not taking, they're asking. Now the situation is that the Israelite woman would have worked in Egyptian households. And they lived and they worked shoulder to shoulder with their Egyptian neighbors. And so in many instances, it's probably very likely that they even became friendly toward one another. But even if not, the Lord was working for the good of the Israelites. This wasn't thievery. They weren't stealing anything. They were asking and they were receiving by divine favor. The Lord is showing the Israelites, I'm going to make sure that your children have some clothes on their back and sandals on their feet. I'm going to make sure you have what you need to make this journey through the sea into the wilderness of the promised land. And you'll have some gold and silver as well if you need it along the way. It's a measure of God's care for us. This is how he works. He not only gets you out, he gets you going. He doesn't just save you, he equips you. He doesn't just redeem you and rescue you, he gives you gifts. And the Lord never tires of giving gifts to his children. Not just physical gifts, the Bible speaks of many spiritual gifts as well. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, When Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You notice how similar the language there is to Exodus? But what is Ephesians 4 all about? It tells us that a part of those gifts is that he gives us apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers. These are gifts to the church. But he also gives each of us spiritual gifts, things that each of us can do to serve the Lord. And so God doesn't just say, all right, I forgive you, I've saved you, welcome into my family. No, he says, I've rescued you, and now I'm going to give you some spiritual plunder to get you on your way and send you out. When God saves people, he gives them gifts. You don't have to leave uh, you, you don't have to leave the world all on your own. There's, there's a helpful principle here that we should make note of. Remember Psalm 24 and verse 1? It tells us, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything, everywhere belongs to the Lord. Within the realm of creation, God has ordained that there are certain things that are unique to his people, but are in, excuse me, they're not unique to his people, but they are indeed good and helpful and right. That can be physical things. Think of things like technology or medical advancement. Or that can be certain truths that unbelievers come to through study and discovery. It could be Visual art that is objectively beautiful, or music, or movies. 
Because of God's common grace, there are many things that are worthy of our time and our attention and our thought. Now, unfortunately, in some fundamentalist circles, the conclusion of some is that if a person is not a faithful Christian, then anything they say or do is of no use or no value to believers or to the church. Now, in reality, that's an impossible conclusion to hold to consistently. But nevertheless, there's a strong aversion toward anything that's not explicitly in the Bible. But think about this. If all of the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, then we have to conclude that all that is true is true because God has made it to be true. In other words, all truth is God's truth. The theologian John Murray has written that the Spirit endows men with gifts, talents, and aptitudes. He stimulates them with interest and purpose to the practice of virtues, the pursuance of worthy tasks, and the cultivation of arts and sciences that occupy time, activity, and energy of men, and that make for the benefit and civilization of the human race. And so unbelievers can come to artistic, scientific, technological, and even philosophical conclusions that are helpful and true and can be utilized by Christians. Reformed Christians have always sought to utilize insights from from pagans when it's appropriate, while rejecting anything that's antithetical to divine truth. This doesn't mean we should uncritically swallow everything that pagans say or do. But we can claim that which is true as a gift from God since the Holy Spirit is the fountain of all truth who guides us in all truth. I've often been asked about my own education and the classes I teach for the Reformed Baptist Seminary and the emphasis that's been placed on classical studies and pagan philosophy and literature. And this is my most basic answer. If all truth is God's truth, then plunder the Egyptians. Consider the Apostle Paul himself. He did this very thing. He freely quoted non-Christian sources in favor of his argument. For example, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, he quotes a prophet of their own and then affirms the statement in the next verse with, this witness is true. Commenting on this verse, John Calvin says that those who fail to appropriate truth from heathens are superstitious. He writes, from this passage, we may infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors. All truth is from God. And consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Besides, all things are of God. And therefore, why should it not be lawful to dedicate to his glory everything that can properly be employed for such a purpose? There are many others who've made similar helpful statements along these lines. Of course, we must be discerning, but we cannot isolate ourselves off into evangelical enclaves. We must continue to understand what God has given to us in this world is for our use, and let us use it well. Let us plunder the Egyptians and take for us what God has intended to be used for his purposes. The Lord has created a big world with much to discover, and we should give thanks to him for doing so. 
no matter the source from which it comes. Let's be faithful to see that the Lord has established an order to things. How he governs his church, we saw that. How he establishes and carries out his purposes, we continue to see that unfolding. And how he receives glory and as he blesses his people and the world around them. We serve a great God, brothers and sisters. And so let us be faithful to follow him in all of our ways. He will do what he says he will do. He will bless us beyond measure as we remember his blessings and receive his gifts and plunder the Egyptians. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very grateful for your word. We are thankful that you have given us order and direction. We are thankful that you bring all of your purposes to pass according to your will and your way. And we are thankful that you have given us this world and all that is in it, that we might utilize what you have provided to bring glory to you and to advance the purpose of the church, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray that we might be discerning and faithful as we seek to plunder the Egyptians, that you might be glorified. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.